Would you please open your Bibles to Romans 14? Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century, uh, not too long after Christ had died and risen again and ascended on high. And we've been making our way through this letter. It is packed, it is densely packed with gospel truth. And we have moved now into a section where uh, Paul is making some very practical applications of the gospel truth to the life of the church, assemblies just like ours. And so this is really part two of the message that we began two weeks ago, welcome one another. Let's pause for prayer and then we'll read that text together as we uh, return to Romans 14. Father, thank you for the power of your truth. Thank you so much that you have given us words of life. Thank you that this word that we open is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, as the writer of Hebrews describes it, and able to penetrate to those deepest, even most secret places of soul and spirit. I ask, Spirit of God, that you would wield this sword in that way, not to destroy but that you might reveal the sin in our hearts, that we might confess it and forsake it, that you would expose those areas of inconsistent thinking, even immature believing, that we may grow in our faith, and that as you expose those secret places within our hearts, we would also experience the life-giving power of this word and be changed by it. What a world we live in. What a moment in history it is. And yet your truth remains unchanged. Your purposes really are at work and as we just sang, will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. At this moment there are buds, as Cooper wrote, that are bitter to our taste. But when those buds have fully bloomed, there will be a sweetness for your people as we experience the fullness of your wisdom and grace. Give us faith to believe that bitterness will give way to sweetness. Give us confidence to look to the unknown future with joy and expectation because you have ordered all things for your glory and for our good, as Paul wrote just a few chapters prior to this. We ask that your blessing would rest not only in this place as we open the word together, but that you would bless the proclamation of your word all around the world on this day, but in particular here in our beloved state. We pray that you would empower the preachers of your gospel and the teachers of your word to speak as it were the oracles of God, not to offer their own opinions, not to offer their perspectives, but to speak with the very unction of the Holy Spirit. Bless Matt as he opens the word um, near Park City. Bless Pastor Lloyd as he opens the word at Berean. Bless uh, Derek Duvall at Awaken City. 
Bless all those faithful servants who seek to proclaim your truth. And we ask specifically that you would bless the preaching of your word today with salvation, with transformation, that individuals may be changed, that homes may be transformed, that our community itself would undergo that magnificent transformation of the gospel itself. So give us grace, Lord Jesus, on this day. We are in need of it, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter, and I broke that down into three larger headings. The first was this, the the command to welcome one another flows out of the fact that God himself has welcomed us, and that will actually uh, be a theme we come back to in chapter 15, God willing, next week. The second truth was this from those first 12 verses, that Jesus Christ is the only Lord. We are not Lord. That means we don't pass judgment on one another and we don't despise one another. Rather, we submit ourselves to him. We are all his household servants. Third big truth from those first 12 verses is that God is judge of all. And again, you're not my judge. I'm not your judge. We shouldn't position ourselves as judges one of another. God is the judge of all, and we will all stand before him one day to give account. That was a strong word of exhortation that the apostle Paul gave us. And so we made our way all the way through verse 12, and we come today to verse 13. So follow along as I read to the end of this chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord, in, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. You ever step on one of those? I'm thankful that Uh, these little building blocks, for the most part, are stored away in buckets and no longer a threat and a hazard uh, to my own feet. Some of you, though, are not out of that phase yet, and it'll be a little while. You know, that is a a kind of, of stumbling block, and I'll explain a little more 
as we go through this passage, though I don't think it's exactly what Paul had in mind. But we've all stepped on things that brought pain or made the journey, whether from one side of the room to another or down a trail or a path of some kind, difficult if not impossible. And Paul is actually addressing some of those things concerning the journey of life. And when we come to verse 13, and we read him saying, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide this. He actually is, is using the same terminology in a bit of a wordplay. If you could see it as he wrote it, we would all recognize he's using the same term where we translate it into the English, pass judgment is the same terminology for decide never to do this. So in one sense, you could say, he's saying, don't, don't judge in this way, but let your judgment be in another way. And thus, my, my first big point, practice the right kind of judgment. We're not to sit in God's place of passing judgment on the spirituality of other people around us, but we are supposed to exercise our judgment in the way that he is instructing us to do. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about stumbling blocks and hindrances, because that's a term or terms that Paul puts out in this verse, and he will repeat it a couple of more times. We need to know what we're talking about. What are we supposed to determine? Well, he says that we would not put a stumbling block or hindrance. Those terms are, are actually synonyms for the same idea. A stumbling block could be any cause that promotes a person to sin or prevents righteous action. So there's a positive and a negative expression of that, if you will. And what I would want you to see is that in the first place, it could be something that prevents righteous action. If you want to turn very quickly with me back to Matthew 16, there's a familiar story there in the Gospels where the Lord has been telling his disciples that he is actually going to suffer uh, and die. And, and that's an unthinkable thought. And we can appreciate what is in um, Peter's heart in particular, but I think what we need to wrestle with is how the Lord speaks a word of rebuke to him. I won't read the whole story for you, but in verse 21, uh, Matthew records, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So there's an example of how this particular concept is, uh, un needs to be understood that you can actually put a stumbling block in front of a person that prevents them from doing the thing that God has called them to do. In this case, Peter, well-intentioned as he was, was actually standing in the way of Christ fulfilling the Father's will, and Christ has a strong word of rebuke, doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan. You know, it's possible to lay down a stumbling block in front of an individual that God is calling to do something. Parents sometimes do that when God calls their children to follow him, and it actually means a geographical move. I've watched families through the years wrestle with seeing their beloved children move to the other side of the world to serve Jesus. And you know what that means? 
you're not there to share your grandchild's birthday. They won't sit at your table at Thanksgiving. You will have to mail Christmas packages. It's not easy. But I've known some parents who, though love was in their heart, would say to a child, you, you, need, to get a, you need to get a job that's going to provide for your family. And if, if you pursue you know, that missionary ministry or that pastoral ministry, you'll never make enough to feed your kids. And I don't want my grandbabies to suffer. That's a stumbling block. It could be a church member or members who object to the use of something as simple as an updated Bible translation or a style of music or even a particular Lord's Day Sunday schedule because they're committed to what they've always known or what they think is right. And they actually stand in the way of the Spirit of God leading the pastors or a leadership team. And it actually decreases gospel effectiveness. You see, a stumbling block is not simply causing someone to commit a sin that God forbids. It could be actually preventing them from taking righteous action that God has called them to do, called them to. But there's a second reality with this, and that is a stumbling block can also be something that promotes sinful action. And if you go to the book of Revelation and you see one of the seven letters to those seven churches that the Lord himself had John, right, you come to chapter two and you see the Lord confronting one of those churches saying, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. That's an Old Testament prophet that Balak had, had uh, hired to put a curse on Israel as they were being delivered from Egypt. It's an old and ancient story and Balaam was a pagan prophet and a wicked man, and he was in it for the profit and money. The, the funny thing about that story, if you go back and read, is that he can't actually curse God's people. And three different times he pronounces an oracle of blessing. And it's, it's somewhat comical, you know, to see Balak, like, I'm paying you to curse them, and you actually do the opposite, you bless them. But one of the things, though, tragically that unfolds, and this is what Revelation 2.14 uh, acknowledges Balaam was the one who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And if you go back to the book of Numbers and read exactly how it unfolded, it tells us in Numbers 25, 1 and 2 that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Strong terminology, isn't it? These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Balak, at the direction of Balaam, was promoting sinful behavior among God's people and they fell for it. And the Lord sends a letter in New Testament times to a particular church saying you're going down the same path. You know, it brings us to a very important point, and as we go forward in the text, it's clear that the Lord is serious about helping one another to walk the path of faith without stumbling into sin or without neglecting the, the duties that God has set before us. All of us, and if we go back to Romans 12 and tie it into that transitional verse where he says, I'm beseeching you, I'm begging you because of the mercies of God that you've experienced to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. There's a totally different ethic and perspective that he is pursuing. And because of the grace of God, we should be people who do not carelessly lead another person into sin either by preventing them from doing what God has called them to do or by promoting sinful behavior that God has forbidden. Now look at verse 14. 
And this begins a little section that I would summarize in this way, that we're called to pursue God's kingdom priorities. And you begin to see something in verse 14 when Paul writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean, unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And then following that, he makes what really is a powerful point for us. Look at verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He takes us back to the cross, doesn't he? To the work of Christ. It's so easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees, as we say. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a very harsh critique of an author named William Golding. He had written a novel titled The Inheritors. I've never read that novel. I'm almost you know, tempted to based on this fairly harsh critique that Lewis gave of it. And he wrote, all those little details you only notice in real life if you've got a high temperature. I thought, hmm, that's curious. You couldn't see the wood for the leaves. That was his little version. You couldn't see the forest for the trees. Apparently, the novel itself was just so complicated, you, you couldn't even like, see the big picture, right? The big story wasn't evident. And you know, it's easy to lose sight of the cross, of the death of Christ, if we're too focused on the individual freedoms we have. That's Paul's point here. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I mean, you can almost hear him uh, saying, as, uh, go, going further as we might, if we were in charge of the conversation, what's the big deal about this food? Why are we even talking about drink? That's true in one, one respect, but I think the, the greater point that Paul is making is don't lose sight of the big work, the big picture that God is doing. Yes, it is true that the food, the drink, the particular practices in one respect, they don't matter, but they matter to some. And for the Jewish believers in particular, who we think Paul had in view, they're, they're having a, a difficult time unhitching their, their, their family traditions rooted in the Old Testament from the present day application of God's truth. I touched on this last week, but probably at the heart of this is the very word of Christ himself that's recorded in Mark's gospel. Or the Pharisees had actually come and said, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They're unclean. And Jesus says, it's, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles him, it's what actually comes out of the heart. And then Mark inserts that little parenthetical explanation, thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. But it's, it's not about that particular leaf or that particular tree in the forest at the moment, it's like, back up, look at the big picture. That's what Paul does in verse 15. Look at that verse with me again. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That term brother appears five times in this chapter. It's crystal clear that Paul is reinforcing the fact that we are a family. We've all been adopted by the mercy of God. That was back in Romans 8. The Spirit dwells in us. It's by him that we cry, Abba, Father. So we're not only a household, uh, we're not only the Lord's household, servants of his, as we looked at earlier in the chapter, but we're members of the same family, governed by one father. Now what does it mean to be grieved by what you eat? 
That means there's actually a genuine hurt at the, at the place of religious convictions. We're at the level of conscience here. And by the way, there are other examples, we don't have time to explore them today, but there are other examples both in the New Testament and in the Gospels where somebody who just has a different, uh, a different conviction or opinion even in one sense either comes to Jesus or the apostles and says, you should stop doing this, and they actually continue to do the very thing. Because there's not that genuine spiritual relationship, care and concern, and so Paul's not talking about if anybody has any problems with anything that you do, stop it. No, it's actually caring for a person whose faith is weak and and leading them to the place where they would grow in their understanding, where they would grow in their practice and not be left infantile. And so he's reminding us that we must not hurt those who are weak in faith. Look at the next phrase, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a very strong expression. And it actually opens the door that we could live so carelessly, so thoughtlessly, so selflessly that that we're not only putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of an individual, but as they stumble over it, it destroys their faith. That they actually abandon Christ. So we're not talking about minor irritations, although sometimes it, it begins at that level. We're actually seeing that the Lord is very concerned about guarding those who are weak in the faith from actions that would cause them to fall away from God. That's the destruction that's in view. John Stott writes in his commentary on Romans, love never disregards weak consciences. Love limits its own liberty out of respect for them. So here's a great question to ask. Is my opinion more important than my brother himself. And I'm not saying is my opinion more important than my brother's opinion. Is my opinion more important to me than my brother, the one for whom Christ died? Now in Romans 14, it's obvious the answer must be, no, my opinion is not more important than my brother. But sometimes we feel like, but it is, because it's right. We run back down that trail. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now what's the good that Paul is writing about here? There are several options that, that Bible teachers and scholars put forward, and I think in the context it's probably simplest to understand is the, the freedom to eat and drink and celebrate certain days or not. The freedom from those Jewish ceremonies. But some believe that it's the gospel itself, others who see it as the kingdom of God, but I think this is a clue for us if, if, you, if you look at that verse and, and dig in a little bit, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And the terminology for speaking evil is actually, you know this word better, blaspheme. That's a strong word. It has to do with slandering or maligning or denigrating or even defaming a person or a group or a movement or a cause. The question is, who is doing the blaspheming here? Is it believers inside the church or is it unbelievers outside? And I don't think it's crystal clear to us at this particular point. But look at where Paul takes it. God is prioritizing our practice here. Verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Do eating and drinking matter to God? Well, sure they do. I mean, just start at the level of he, he put really delightful flavors into food. So he's made it a delight to enjoy it, 
Same with beverages of all kinds. There's nutritional benefit. I mean, you can't live without food. So food is important, right? But it's not as important as some other things. And that's where we need to learn to prioritize life as God himself seems to prioritize life. And he's telling us in, in no uncertain terms here what his priorities are. Look at the text. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Well, what is it? Well, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I think that the term righteousness uh, has to do with right behavior within the community of believers. I think the context points us this direction. Same with peace. It would have to do with harmony, the mutual support of believers with one another and joy. That's the emotion we share, that great happiness that we experience when we come together and say, isn't God amazing? Look at what he has done. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my answer to prayer. What, what's God doing in your life? It's interesting though how, again, we would focus, we would tend to focus on our freedoms and as they are expressed here with food or drink or particular special days, holy days if you will. But our legalism surfaces at every given opportunity. You say, what do you mean? We see it and recognize it in the Pharisees, don't we? You can go back to any one of the Gospels and just see a number of instances, and one of those is recorded in Matthew 23, where the Pharisees insisted on on their particular adherence to the ritual laws of the Old Testament, but Jesus called them out on it and said, you do that at the expense of justice, mercy, and faith. And it does seem there's a parallel here in the, in the letter to the Romans that the strong, as one author writes, are insisting on exercising their freedom from the ritual law at the expense of righteousness, peace, and joy. There's a parallelism here. Let me illustrate it this way. I grew up in a really conservative culture, and so that meant you, you were expected to dress a certain way and live a certain way and act a certain way and not act in other particular ways, and as long as you, you know, kind of met the community standard, then you, know, you were good, a good Christian even. I remember hearing the story from a, a friend uh, who moved to the West Coast and whereas in the South, as I grew up, you know, like your Sunday best would be coat and tie, ladies wore dresses and all that. Well, on the West Coast, this was this, was this person's particular experience, a church that, that, uh, that this couple landed in, it, it was just as legalistic, but guess what the dress code was? It was casual. You know, and anybody who showed up in a coat and tie was like, what in the world? That's not our code. And whereas I grew up in a totally, uh, a, a, a total abstinence kind of culture, even there, it's like, what, you don't drink a beer? What's your deal? And, and it was interesting to listen to this couple talk about how they had this kind of, and they, like I, had grown up in a you know, very uh, conservative southern culture, but West Coast, they suddenly realized they traded one legalism for another. Because it was the same spirit that said we, we measure our spirituality by these things that we do and say and eat and drink. And both groups have lost sight of what? That the kingdom of God is not about that stuff. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. 
So it brings us to an important point, asking another question, is my freedom, and however you express, and I'm talking spiritual freedom, and I'm talking national freedom, but is my spiritual freedom more important to me than right behavior within the community of believers? True righteousness, true peace, true joy. So God prioritizes our practices in the kingdom, and he says, your food and your drink matter, but not nearly as much as these things. Here's a fourth thing. You'll see in the text, beginning in verse 18, that God is pleased with serving our service to Christ, not self. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. Let's pause right there. That just means that God's well-pleased. He loves it when we say, Jesus, I want to serve you. And serving Jesus means serving his people. But notice that second phrase there, and approved by men. This is, this is what helps, I, I think, to understand um, what I had said, or not what I had said, what Paul had written back in verse 16 about don't let your good be spoken of as evil. Don't let it be blasphemed. And I think this is where we may see a little clue that says it's actually broader than just the conversation going on within the church. Because now Paul writes, if you serve Christ, it's not only acceptable to God, but it's approved by men. And the term he uses for approved means that, that they're compelled to recognize something is going on here, something supernatural. They may not agree with it, may not fully understand it, but one thing is crystal clear to them. You people are about Jesus. You're about believing him. You're about following him. You're about serving him. You're about worshiping him. And when people see that, they approve. We're not living for their approval, but there is, there's something here, though, that is strongly motivating, and I think our world needs to see, needs to be compelled to recognize that Christ really is all and in all to us. The authenticity of our love and care for one another is not only pleasing to God, but it is compelling and should be compelling to the human race we're a part of. You ever been around a selfish family where everyone is simply looking out for their own interests? It's unsettling. It's repelling. Nobody wants to be thrown into that kind of thing. It's just chaos. It's a version of Lord of the Flies. And the Lord has a very different plan for his assembly. And what unites us is our Savior, the one who died for us. Now look at where Paul goes in verse 19. He calls us to live for the benefit of one another. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Making peace means you're making an effort toward harmony, of cultivating that atmosphere of wholeness, of health, of strength and stability. And mutual edification, notice that goes both ways, mutual edification. So you don't come to church just because you get good stuff out of it. We hope you do. We pray and work toward that end every week. But that's not the sole focus here, is it? No, you and I need to show up here looking to contribute something to others, looking to build up people. It could be just through a word of encouragement. It could be through a hug. It, it could be through a, a, a kind gesture. Maybe you bought an extra coffee on your way to church or some specialty drink that you enjoy and you show up and just say, hey, thought of you this morning, hope you like this. 
could be big things, it could be little things, but there's that sense of, no, we're here for the mutual building up of one another. God is calling us to live for the benefit of one another. Look at verse 20. He, he restates the warning that he began with. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Don't tear it down. We know we can do that by passing judgment, right? We know we can do that by despising one another. You can do that by those little subtle criticisms of individuals or groups. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Your brother, your sister in the faith, is the work of God, but so is the assembly. We are the work of God. And Paul reinforces this. This is not a new thought for us either. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You cannot prioritize even your God-given freedom over the well-being of another person. Then look at verse 21. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And again, we're talking about doing something or speaking, living in such a way where that person is led to take a step that in their development before the Lord, they're not ready for. And so we need to be asking an important question, how can I love in such a way that my brother is strengthened and built up in the faith? What is best for him? What's best for her? Last big point, practice your faith wisely. Look at verse 22. This is fascinating. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, first of all, let's make sure we understand what he means when he says the faith you have. He's not talking about, we, you know, just this, this faith is a private thing. Like, don't tell other people about Jesus and what he's done. We, we use the term differently when we say, you know, I had an opportunity to share my faith with someone. Well, what we mean when we say that is we shared the gospel. We shared the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like us. Well, that we know we're called to share. So Paul's not contradicting that. No, the, the way he uses the term faith has to do with those practices, those convictions and commitments of the soul that we work out on a daily basis. And so I think it would be simplest to understand this first word of, of admonition in this way. Don't flaunt the, flaunt the convictions of your conscience. And again, this goes both ways. This is true for the weak as well as the strong, though the strong might be preeminently in view. There are aspects of your faith that you, you don't need to broadcast. At the same time, look at verse 23. This is where Paul is encouraging us, don't ignore the cautions of your conscience. Whoever has doubts, he writes, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So he's making room for the weak faith brothers and sisters who are saying, I'm not sure where that meat came from. And, and Old Testament Jewish law said that we can never eat meat offered to idols and it needs to be kosher and approved. And if that meat hasn't, been, hasn't gone through all that process, then I don't have faith to eat it. And for the moment, Paul is saying, that's okay. Nobody's gonna make you. And we need to make room for one another to grow. Nobody here likes to think, I'm a weak faith Christian but we all have our points of weakness. At the same time, strong as you may be, there's still room for you to grow. That's why we must always be people who are submitting our conscience, our faith, 
to the Lord saying, Lord, does it need to be calibrated? Does it need to be adjusted? Does it need to be corrected? Does it need to be strengthened? Show me. So while he is cautioning weak Christians against acting against their conscience, the direction of this text would say to them, but you know you're weak in this area. And kind of the unspoken question is, you gonna grow? Because you don't have a sense that Paul is content to leave them there. Even some of the terminology that we've encountered earlier back in verse 19, we're to be people who make who, who not only make for peace, but for mutual upbuilding. We, we need to strengthen ourselves personally, and we need to strengthen one another. That's why it's good to have conversations. Like, you know, t- tell me your thoughts on this, and how do you see this, and how do you practice that? And I've shared a little bit about my background. It's been very helpful to not only interact with people from, from different areas of this country, but even international travel itself within the context of the church and the body of Christ has been powerfully informative, instructive, and edifying where you realize some of the stuff you grew up thinking is not ever pleasing to God, you realize in another context, in another culture, it's exactly what pleases God. There's not a one-size-fits-all kind of application. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So it's okay to say, I don't have faith to do that. But the question you need to ask yourself is, should you stay there? And does God need to calibrate your conscience? There's so much more. We'll, we'll come back to this in Romans 15 because Paul is not done with it. But would you turn to Acts 10 for just a moment? And I want to show you how the Lord himself calibrates a conscience. And I say this because even in my own experience, there, when I... Um, I had the opportunity, one of the books I recommended last week on conscience by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley was just such a, such a watershed moment for me personally. One of those books I, I thought, I wish I'd read this, you know, 30 years earlier. But in Acts 10, you have something that I think runs parallel to some of the issues that were going on in Rome. Peter was Jewish from birth. And we all love Peter, right? Because He's loyal, he's committed, he just says, you know, he's one of the first to jump in, and he says what he thinks. And I think so many of us say, yeah, I relate to that guy a lot. But as you come into Acts 10, you see something quite extraordinary. And the Bible tells us in verse nine that Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's a good thing, isn't it? And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. That's an intriguing thing. He's not the only one who's distracted in prayer times. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And we know whose voice that is. It's the Lord. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That terminology sound familiar? And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius 
having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, he's a Gentile, if you're not picking up on that yet, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited him in to be his guest. Now, if you keep reading through this, it becomes evident that the whole you know, food and sheet vision that God gave Peter was calibrating his conscience, not just so he would have liberty you know, to go to Chakarama and eat whatever is set before him. It's ultimately about having his his conscience calibrated for the sake of the gospel because something that every committed Jew would struggle with would be am I defiling myself ceremonially before God if I have table fellowship if I sit down to a meal with men like Cornelius God's saying you won't as a matter of fact you need to shift your thinking from will I be defiled to this is the thing I must do it's absolutely, it's, it's absolutely essential for you as you are on gospel mission to have a conscience that has been calibrated and strengthened by the Lord himself where you can eat and drink anything set before you so you can keep the main thing the main thing because the kingdom of God is not about food and drink and celebrating special holidays. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about speaking the gospel. It's about living for Jesus. That's one of the things that's at stake even with Rome as Paul writes this letter and that's one of the things that's at stake for us. So don't be so committed to your leaves that you actually fail to be committed to the forest of the mission. Don't be so committed to protecting your freedoms and exercising them that you miss opportunities to stand alongside even a weak faith Christian and go forward in gospel ministry. Don't be so committed to your personal convictions, which, let's face it, there are convictions that we form that flow out of Scripture, but at the end of the day, it's not actually Scripture itself that you say, well, you know, I just don't think I can be a part of this. Keep the main thing the main thing. Stepping back to look at the big forest, there's a cross in the middle of this vision, isn't there? And because of that cross, as we'll see in Romans 15, very specifically, we're called to welcome one another because God welcomes us at the end of the day because Jesus hung on a cross and died. How will you welcome others into your heart? If you're just looking for the people who sound like you, look like you, dress like you, eat like you, live life like you, you're gonna miss a great blessing of being connected to people who aren't like you in any other way than you share Jesus. How will you welcome others into your heart? Number two, how are my convictions or freedoms more important to me at this moment than the ones for whom Christ died? And number three, how can I pursue peace and mutual benefit, mutual building up? I'm so thankful for many things that I see here underway at Gospel Hope, and it heartens me. And while nobody's perfect and there's always room to grow, oh, thank you, Gospel Hope. You do so many of these things well. But don't be content. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Follow his lead. Real practically, we're, we're you know, there's no equipped class today. Uh, and we're actually gonna have a, a picnic, but 
we're keeping it here. It's a little too chilly, and the threat of rain and even thunder and lightning is too real. Um, so this is, now, now you know. I mean, it's not my decision alone, but um, I guess I'm at the point, and I'm, I'm a conservative dude by nature. So we're going to reset the building in a little bit, and we're going to have a good meal together. And you know what the temptation is? To, to go find the people you already know and that you're comfortable with and sit down and, and just like, you know, but this is a day for some of you to say, I'm actually going to make a point to meet somebody I don't know, engage in conversation, learn about them, and just ask the Spirit of God to let even that little conversation be mutually edifying. So there's a real-world opportunity right now. And some of you say, lunch here? Nobody told me. You just heard, so please stay. God wants you to stay today. You say, I didn't bring anything. That's all right, a bunch of other people did. Well, you've, you've been smelling it. You walked in like I did this morning, like what is that yummy smell already? It, it's here for you. So you don't have to worry about food and drink. You can focus on the kingdom, right? Righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. And you'd say, seriously, are you stretching this? No, it's that practical. That's what the Christian life comes down to. Well, let's pray together. Lord, while there are immediate simple steps we can take. There are also other steps that will present themselves tomorrow. And oh, how we pray that you would grow in us the very heart we have seen and known and experienced in you. Thank you that you have welcomed us for Christ's sake. Thank you that you have made room in your household for weak faith Christians and strong faith Christians all of us in process, all of us being sanctified. Thank you that you are the Lord who is able to make your servant stand and the promise of Romans 14 is that we will stand before you. Give us love one for another and forgive us for passing judgment and despising those who have very different opinions, even practices. And while we thank you for the mighty grace that you have shown to us as a church family, we long to grow, to mature to be the very kind of people that Paul described who because of our service to Christ are pleasing to you. Let that be our one great ambition on this day to please you in all things and out of that would you cause the testimony of this body of believers to compel the recognition of our community that the God of heaven is at work. Oh Lord God, meet with us. Change us, strengthen us, bless us. For Christ's sake, we pray, amen.